Steven. James. What's going on? Well, a lot. Summer, which means... I hate summer. Don't you hate summer? You know, on some levels, I hate it. I used to, you know what I used to do? I used to hate it because. So hot. I don't don't like like the the hot. What's the deal with the beach? Like they go to the beach, you're sitting in dirt looking at blue and it's just hot and you can't do anything. Okay, you could swim for three minutes and then it's too hot and annoying and you might drown and there might be sharks. Why don't they just stay in home and be in the air conditioning and read a book and watch TV? As much as I'd like to contradict you. I have to agree almost entirely. I love the beach for the first seven minutes. And then if you can do stuff there, like have a great wiffle ball game on the beach or go surfing, which I don't do. Body surfing I'll do. You know, I'm not a huge ocean-knowing-going person, although many friends are. You're indoorsy. You're not outdoorsy. I think of myself as outdoorsy. I, I, I spent much of my first 30 years outdoors, and then I came in. But um, it's funny, I was having this conversation the other day with someone at the club where I play golf. He works at the club, and, uh, you know, it's a service job, and sometimes there are jerks who are going to mistreat you. It had been a long holiday weekend, and I asked him how it had gone, whether he, you know, survived, whether any jerks, fistfights, whatever. He said, no, he said, the thing about this place is when people come here, they are just so happy to be here that, you know, they're, they leave behind the, the jerkiness that they might, that they may or may not have. And we got to talking about it, and I realized the other thing about golf that I love and that I think a lot of people like about it is because it requires a certain amount of concentration when you're doing it, your mind gets transported to a different place, and you become almost a different kind of person because of that concentration. So golf turns someone into an asshole, is what you're saying. No, I would say the opposite. <laughs> okay, I, I didn't know. It's possible. But but my point is, it was the comparison between something like golf, which I realize a lot of people may not like golf at all. They may think it's stupid, blah, 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 blah. Okay, okay I'm sorry to interrupt, but don't you think golf, like those shorts that golf players sometimes wear, like men should not be wearing shorts. I, I, I'm Just, not a big fan of looking at the bare so, legs of everybody. So we agree myself. again. Yeah, we agree again. But here's the, the parallel we were drawing is four hours of golf would seem to be to a lot of people to just be like a painful surrender of all the things that make modern life sensible and worthwhile. But to me, it's not because of the concentration factor. I happen to think it's really fun, but also because your mind is really engaged in it. And compare that to, for me, going to sit on a beach or by a lake or by a pool. I just don't I just can't get my mind around how that can be enjoyable. But I know that there are million that I'm in the minority. There are millions and millions and billions of people who actually love that. And really the lesson I take from it is that preferences are heterogeneous and I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful to live in a world where some people love something that I may hate. It doesn't hurt me that they love it. It doesn't hurt them that I hate it. And I just uh, look at it and I move on. So I don't get bothered by these things, or I try not to. I'm not saying you get bothered, but you looked a little bit agitated when you were talking about all those people at the beach. Oh no! What's I, the deal with summer, says James? No, I, <laughs> I do get agitated. People say, hey, do you want to go to the beach with us? And I'm like, nah, no thanks. They think I'm being, like, weird. Mm. And I get a little upset at that. Like, I get a little, I'm not weird. And You're not weird, Don't James. ask me, don't ask me to the beach ever again! <laughs> um... Was okay, that, was that your question of no, the day? No, no. We're recording this right after Memorial Day, and this is a little bit controversial, 
Do you think any wars were worth it ever in history? Well, sure. It depends who you're talking about worth it for whom. So, well, well okay. Um, Hannibal made out pretty well. Yeah, sure. You if, know? if you or your family died in a war, then, well, I don't know. I don't know. What makes a war worth it? Tell me. What makes a war worth it? Well, let me begin by saying I am not qualified to answer this question on any level as oh, a military know, historian, we, as we an historian. We know you're not qualified to answer <laughs> questions. <laughs> Let's move beyond that. That's since That's been since day one of QOD. <laughs> Neither of us are qualified to answer any questions. We're qualified to ask questions. We're not qualified to answer them. Mm. What makes a war worth it? I like your question. Let's go back in time. Like, okay, uh, Gulf War II. Oh, that's not going back so far, is it? I'm just keep on going. Go, I was I'll just reading about. I was just reading about the origins of World War One. My son wrote a, okay, a, a nice paper for history about the Schlieffen Agreement or the Schlieffen Plan. You know that was that it? Schlieffen. See, World War One was so that inconsequential that I don't even know so what the Schlieffen Plan was. Yeah, inconsequential. What are you talking about? Inconsequential. World I mean, War I. that was like one of the, that was the biggest war ever at the time. Yeah, people, most people don't even know why that war started. Really, it wasn't really about some archduke being assassinated. It was about many other things. But most, so most people don't know what those other things are. Was that a war worth fighting by well, America of all okay, things? So like, why did America go across well, the ocean and well, fight it? Again, we we tend to join these wars kind of late after there's a, a a long procession of reasons or incentives to finally join them. So we're not the uh, we're not the aggressors. We're not the second or third country in either. But basically, so here's okay. So if you ask the question, was World War One worth it for Germany, which was a primary aggressor? Interestingly, even though they got hammered afterwards, Clemenceau, you know, the Treaty of Versailles, they, they were, you know, hammered afterwards for having been an aggressor. It turns out that World War I ended up being for Germany uh, a pretty good laying of groundwork to start World War II, which also didn't turn out the way they wanted. Okay. But for Germany, was World War I worth it? I mean, by any uh, conventional measures, no, unless you're trying to define yourself as a certain kind of citizen in a certain community, which Germany as a country within Europe was. So, but, but let me let me readdress that. Was World War One or any war worth it for America to get involved in? Oh, is that what you're asking? I think so. I mean, I'm I'm gonna, I could ask for any country, but let's um, just say America. So it is an interesting question: what the outcome of World War II would have been had America not joined England? Obviously, but it's hard to do a what if. Like, yeah, lots of things could have happened in life if 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 X didn't happen. You know, then you can never predict the future. But just in general, like we lost millions of lives, other hundreds or millions of people got injured horrifically. Was was it worth it for American families and American economy for World War One to get for, well, for America to get involved? I would argue those are two really different questions. Question of the day. We'll return in a minute. Thanks. I'm Sarah Thayer. And I'm Susan Orlean. And nothing makes us happier than hearing what makes people cry. On our show, Crybabies, we talk to comedians, musicians, writers, and other awesome people about what makes them cry. And sometimes we cry too. But it's the good kind of crying. Therapeutic. Yeah. Like when James Urbaniak explained why Yellow Submarine is so affecting. I had Revolver and I was listening to that and that came on. And suddenly, just John Lennon cutting up. Yellow, yellow. And he's just being so funny, and and it just snuck up on me. What 
What's going on? <laughs> I'm crying at Yellow Submarine, the goofiest Beatles song. So listen to Crybabies. Find us on Earwolf, Howl, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. Okay, so let me back up. War sucks. If it were up to me, there would never be another war. If it were up to me, there would probably never be another homicide. And, and, to, be but, cl- and to be clear, the people who participate in war, they're all heroes. This is not about, you should always, Memorial Day is important, like to remember well, the people no, who died in war. I would say everyone who participates in a war is a hero. I no, would, but I, I mean, would... they've been through something that is respected. But that question aside. Yeah, here's the thing. Let me back it down to crime, which is a sort of small version of war. I used to think about crime, like I didn't, I didn't really, you know, everybody hears about crime and nobody likes it, obviously. Even the criminals, turns out, with violent crime don't like it. And it took me a long time to understand what most violent crime is. And what most violent crime is, is a really poor decision made in a moment where you're not thinking or behaving at your best or as you wish to. In other words, you got to control and that results in you doing something to hurt somebody else that uh, has a lot of consequences for them, for you, for society, the costs of crime, not just physical, not just financial costs of imprisonment and uh, law and order and all that. But I mean, you know, every crime exacts a cost in fear, right? If people are scared to go do something or go somewhere because they think it might be dangerous or all these costs associated with crime. And yet, If you look at the sociology of crime and the economics of crime, and if you read criminology, you find that very, 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 very few people who commit violent crime actually decide, you know what, I'm going to go out and hurt somebody for the sake of pleasure. There are some sadists and sadomasochists, whatever, some psychotics, but they're extraordinarily rare. So to me, the commission of a crime is usually essentially, like I said, a really poor decision made often as a result of a series of smaller bad decisions. To me, war is not that dissimilar on a lot of levels, except the people who decide to commit the acts of aggression have a lot more leverage and a lot more resources. I don't think I understand. So you're saying war is, when when America decides to go to a war, it's usually because of a series of bad decisions America made that added up and that the people in charge who aren't themselves going into war, they have a lot of leverage of putting young 18-year-olds into a a situation where they might die. Yeah, sort of, although, again, I think you have to, any war, you have to separate out the aggressors and the participators as allies, right? So World War I and II, you know, are are kind of most, um, I mean, we've had a bunch of different kinds of wars in America right now. Most famous still one in World War I and II were very different. There was a European aggressor whose allies begged and begged and begged us to get involved, and ultimately we did. But what I'm saying is that war is typically not the first plan of any government. Typically not. But then, you look, look at how Putin has, according to the American view at least, used war in, the, in Ukraine and elsewhere to cement what seems to be a kind of, uh, you know, renaissance political policy at home. And there, war, or something that looks like war, would seem to be pretty strategic. So in that case, my parallel of being an extension of the emotion and the bad decisions that drive something like violent crime wouldn't seem to hold. It's more complicated, more strategic than that. But more strategic in the sense that he was able to open up, let's say, oil pipelines so his rich friends could get more rich. It wasn't necessarily strategic in sort of the better interests of the country. I don't know if I could make that argument, only because the Russian 
national character is one that's very much dependent on a certain kind of strength that goes back, you know, centuries. And so I'm not sure I would make the argument that you just made that it's not about cementing the homeland perception of itself, the way the country feels about itself. Okay, look, but Putin, that doesn't make Putin's it, that doesn't make it rating, justified. Putin, and Putin's approval rating is probably a double right now any American president's approval rating in the last 50 years. Still doesn't make it justified that so many, you know, Russian you know, young kids who got killed in any of these wars, plus not to mention the the kids in the other countries. I'm not saying it's justified. You were asking if it's strategic. No, I'm asking, but my original question you is... Gotta, you asked me a specific question, I'll answer, even though... No, my specific say, question was... I don't know anything about this. Is any war justified? From America, I, I think that's just not a question that's answerable in a by even by someone who really knows what they're talking about. Is any war justified? I think it's just too broad of a question. So I think that, look, what do you consider... Uh, like, should America have gone in World War One? Well, that's a very different question from, is any war justified? So should America have gone into World War I? Um, in retrospect, faced with the notion of Germany colonizing most of Europe? Mm. I mean, Germany now has colonized most of Europe. Like, Germany no. basically dominates the EU. No, that's a, I would I would argue that it's a very different uh, form of colonization. Uh, I would say if it was worth it for the world for America to have joined World War One and World War Two, I would say yeah, at great cost. But again, as uh, certainly not as a, a first possible solution. But here's here's the thing that I find interesting about the question is there are a lot of things we do in modern life, little things that each individual does, big things that societies do that we do mostly because they're habits. Right, And if you look at the history of the world, war was the means to kind of get what you wanted, right? Trade was sort of starting to come along. Transportation was sort of starting to come along. Commerce, blah, 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 blah. But with, the, with all those tools being very primordial, war could get the job done. Okay, then let me frame it in a different way. You have this excellent podcast with your 15-year-old footy son. Footy for two. Footy for two. <laughs> I highly recommend anybody listen to it if they're interested in soccer or just Now, father, you've never listened to that podcast, Diana. have you? I don't listen I to like any podcast. I like that you say it's excellent, uh, never having heard it. No, I've heard it once, uh, but I don't really listen to any podcast in general. But um, is there any situation that would justify you sitting Solomon down and saying, you know what? These are good reasons for you to put on a uniform, go overseas, and take a chance of getting killed. Would anything let you do that? Um, is there any possible rational I'm guessing rational the answer is reason? not no, but I don't know what the yes is. It's funny. We have this conversation in our house in two... It's a very funny conversation to have. Yeah. <laughs> kind of in two on two channels. One is um, because we're Jewish, we have a, a strong affinity for Israel. And we visited Israel. We have a lot of relatives in Israel and so on. And, you know, if you're an Israeli citizen, when you turn whatever, when you're out of high school, you do a um, couple years in the IDF, uh, in the Israeli Defense Forces, and everybody does it. Um, men, women, um, able-bodied, uh, physically handicapped, and so on. You know, we, we sometimes have talked about moving to Israel. I don't think we ever will, but it's a country we, we like a lot. It's on our top five list of countries we love. And we're not looking to leave America, love America. But, you know, we, we did talk about, you know, what would it be like if we decided when you were 15 years old to move over there and, and qualify you for military service? And the short version of the conversation went something like, if we decided that we felt strongly enough about moving to a different country like Israel where they had that, then that would have to be part of the equation. 
And um, my wife and I look at it a little bit differently because she's a mom and I'm a dad. Also, I come from a military family, as probably most people listening to this come from a military family, if not this generation or even one before. But my dad served in World War II. My oldest brother was a career Air Force pilot. And so I have a view of the military that is, um, I should say, often at odds with a, a standard view of the military, especially within this kind of East Coast elite chattering class media world in which I happen to live too. When I worked at the New York Times, I was really surprised at how kind of pro forma anti-military um, many, many, many people were dismissing all the institutions as if they were full of brutes and unlearned people, which I know to be very much not the truth. I've spent some time at West Point, which I think is a remarkable institution. You've spent some time there, like, as a student? No, no, as a reporter. I can't quite picture you in boot camp, but... Yeah, no, I don't think I would survive. I can't picture me in boot camp. Yeah, I'd like to think I could have survived Beast when I was that age, but I don't... I don't think I could. But the other thing that's always interested me is the makeup of the American military. So most people assume that it's kind of like, you know, the people who go, who voluntarily, you know, it's a military, it's a voluntary military now, that most people who end up in it have, it's like the last resort. And that is very, very, very much not the case. So if you look at the socioeconomic educational background of the modern American military, it's not. We're not talking about dregs by a long, 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 long shot. In fact, it's very hard to um, get into and last in the military if you're not pretty competent and, and really devoted and disciplined. So I think that our understanding of you know what the military does and what it's for is pretty warped. Um, but that said, I've known very few military people who were hungry for war. Um, I I really do look at war as um, the last resort in a series of communications and directives and ideas that have gone wrong. And so um, I'm as anti-war as I would argue any uh, general would be, which Hmm. is, I would argue, not a contradiction. All right. Well, here's hoping for peace. And uh, happy Memorial Day, James. We've got another great question on tap for next time. Take a listen. So if I take the train up to Cold Spring where my kids are, I'm looking out the window. If I look at the river, it's really beautiful going up the Hudson River and there's mountains on the other side and it's just super beautiful. So why does looking out the window on a bus or a train make us think deeply about life? What is it about it that's sort of meditative? Wow. Wow.